the trenches with Ryan Roxy. Hello, 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 hello. Ryan Roxy here and welcome to another live stream. Well, this is actually a secret sauce episode of In the Trenches. And uh, today, wow, what can I say about today? It's a good one, folks. Um, If you are listening to us on Apple or Spotify or any of the audio platforms, thank you very much, by the way. But uh, you're going to want to pull over or stop what you're doing and sign up to our uh, YouTube channel official channel right there. Hit that subscribe button. Get into the chat right now because today, I'm telling you, um, one of the most successful songwriters of our generation. Um, You know that we've had Hall of Famers on before. Uh, This one, another Hall of Famer. This time time coming from the Songwriters Hall of Fame. Um, Like I said, one of the most successful songs of our generation. And if every song has a story, uh, folks, we're going to be here for a little while. So sit up and Grab a drink, grab some food, or just sit back and uh, enjoy this next conversation because I would like to welcome into the trenches, Mr. Desmond Child. Hello, Desmond. Hey. How you doing, man? Oh, well, uh, you know, in my bunker, you know, <laughs> trying to survive the, uh, zom- the zombie trumpocalypse. Oh, I know. And and just think, the Civil War hasn't even started yet. So you have all that to look forward to. I know. I, I just wonder if people are going to go back to like the blue and gray uniforms and stuff with muskets. Well, you know, in the, during the Civil War, this is what I'm told. I Maybe I have this completely wrong. But Memphis was the South and Nashville was the North. Until, the, until Nashville got, you know, taken over. But uh, (laughs) it was called the Athens of the South. And in fact, in honor of that title, they built a replica of the Parthenon uh, from Greece, from Athens, Greece, that sits uh, above the Acropolis. And uh, they it's fantastic. It's it's not like like a ruin. It's like how it looked when it was like just built. Desmond, how many interviews have we ever started in our careers? You've been doing way more that we started with talk about the Civil War and uh, the Greek ruins. This has to be a first for you. <laughs> well, there are, I've had a lot of firsts. <laughs> I know you have. And a lot of number ones. And we're going to talk about a lot of those. Um, and as far as top 40s, over 80 uh over 80 top 40s is that is that the current number right now or is it even growing well, I've from been there saying over over 80 top 40s for the last 25 years so there might have been some that peaked over the 80. All right. but I, I do have a number one hit all over the world with ava max called kings and queens it was number one in europe on the european radio chart for the last five weeks and so that officially makes it six decades of number one hits you're going to have well, to change your rap. You're going to have to call you because you, you, you're so used to saying five decades. Now it's six decades. Six decades. And I'm good till 2030. <laughs> we'll try and get you to 100 before the zombie apocalypse does take place. How about that? So the way we start things is we go back. We have to go back to get forward. And I want to talk a little bit about, um, obviously, the first band that you broke in with, which was um, Desmond and Rouge, Rouge. Desmond Child, me, and Rouge, which are these three incredible women. Maria Vidal, Diana Griselli, 
and Miriam Valley. And there's a nice shot of it right now. If you guys want to go onto Instagram and start following that, Vic, do you have that uh, Instagram tag for them right now to post up? No? It's okay. at Desmond Child and Rouge, and spelled out at Desmond Child and Rouge. There it is. See, I, I always just give my producer Vic a little bit of hell because I, whenever something impromptu comes up, I say, do you got a clip of that? Do you have that? Can you put that up? And of course he doesn't, but you know what? He might be able to do it this time. Cause I do want to get into a little bit of the uh, earlier uh, Desmond child and Rouge. It was uh, one of my favorite movies, the warriors. You had a song on it and um, that song I'm telling you a last of an American breed. No, I listen Last of an ancient breed. Why, why did I say that? It's in my notes. It's saying ancient. Vic, I want to blame Vic. Uh, I don't like the font I'm seeing. But last of an ancient breed. It's right there in front of me. Tell me this. I got a bit of a Bruce Springsteen meatloaf vibe from it. Well, Even- that's what, you know, the movie company came to us because we had, you know, kind of emerged and, you know, they always want the latest thing. And we we had gotten popular that year. Um, and so we did, you know, had two albums the same year. We did a national tour. Uh, Rouge went on, on Broadway with Gilda Radner for uh, Gilda Life from New York. And then we were the musical guests on Saturday Night Live. And at the same time, I was having a huge hit as a co-writer with Kiss of a song called I was made for loving you. That's so right. so that year was was huge for us. And so the movie company came and, you know, sent us the script and, you know, everything. And so I I came up with, with that last of an ancient breed. I don't know how I came up with that. But they wanted this anthemic, you know, kind of a revved up thing. Right. And, um, you know, the thing is, is that our first album was way more blue-eyed soul and influenced by dance. But that year, if you see what happened to the Bee Gees, uh, they even like they took every disco record in the world and they burned them and <laughs> ran, ran machines over them. I don't know, like in a big stadium. And it was like disco was dead. So we immediately switched gears, which we were doing naturally anyway, and made a more rock record. Now, and you have to realize that Bruce Springsteen was like this heavy shadow that fell off uh, on all of us in New York, especially bands. And so uh, there was a huge uh, Bruce Springsteen element to our second album. And then that served me when I went to co-write many, many years later with Bon Jovi, because I had that already in my system, that Jersey sound. Jersey sound, yeah. But the thing is, I see that Rouge is turning more rock and roll where you as a songwriter, you're converting rock bands a bit more into the dance vibe. And that's where that 1979, I was made for loving you off the dynasty album from kiss that, that song basically broke them completely wide open. They were big already, no doubt, but this is when they went like mainstream. I remember it. And there was, there was some backlash for it, but guess what? To this day, it doesn't matter how many spikes, leather, hairspray, whatever, you're jumping up and down for that song. And I know that it was kind of a, a little bit of a controversy at one point because, I mean, here it is, this this great song, I Was Made For Loving You, that you made, but the band, not everybody in the band was big fans for of it. 
Am I correct with that? Well, Gene, Gene didn't like it. And even to this day, he'll, he'll claim he doesn't like it, except that, remember that movie, Why Him? Where they played it all through the movie? And then all <laughs> of a sudden, the band is actually in the movie, and there's Gene Simmons singing, I Was Made for Loving You. I guess the check was big. And uh, <laughs> all of a sudden, he liked it a lot. He likes money more than he doesn't like the song. How about that? Exactly. <laughs> and um, of course, Paul Stanley was uh, instrumental in working you, you, the two of you working together and some introductions made with Paul Stanley, right? Because didn't Paul introduce you into the world of John Bon Jovi? Well, Bon Jovi was opening act. Uh, one of the opening acts in a big tour that Kiss did in Europe. Um, and uh, he had made friends with John and said, hey, you should try writing with Desmond. So John gave me a call. What happened was that the first time we got together to write uh, at Richie's house in, uh, in New Jersey, you know, I had a title in my back pocket you give love a bad name, literally in my back pocket, written on a little piece of paper. And I pulled it out and I said the title and that's, you know, John looked me straight in the, in the eyes. And that's when he gave me the, his first glimpse of the billion dollar smile. You know, right. I saw nothing but teeth and <laughs> uh, it, it, it was a great moment. And uh, he had a song on his first record that he had written called, um, shot through the heart so he's not one to let a good hook go to waste so he brought that in and it was shot through the heart and youtube darling you give love a bad name and uh that was our first hot you know three-way high five nice nice well so then, i had always so then the idea of writing for other people went out the window and they kept the song as you as you do but that i mean launched their career completely um I always say there is a story behind every song written. That story sort of had real life characters. Everybody brought something to it. John might've brought that line, but you actually brought the characters of that song. No, I mean, um, John had always said that the characters he had in mind when we wrote that song were his high school friends, Bonnie and Joe. And I think Richie, once I spoke to him, he said, well, I was thinking about my parents because they really struggled, you know, when, you know, to make ends meet. And then um, I was thinking about my girlfriend uh, who she and I co-founded Desmond Child and Rouge, Maria Vidal. And she was working in a diner that was like a singing diner in New York City called Once Upon a Stove. And um, her like waitress name was Gina Velvet. And that's why I brought in Gina. So when I first mentioned Gina, I thought Gina and Johnny, you know, because my name is John, because I was thinking about us, my my real name, John Barrett. And so uh, John said, no, 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 I can't sing Johnny because thing people think because I like the alliteration Gina and Johnny. Uh, but uh, he said, you know, people think I'm singing about myself and it's like, right. And then he said, Tommy, which was like a sound alike. And that's where Tommy and Gina were born. Who was on board with it more? Was it Richie or was it uh, John that wanted to record it? Oh, with Living on a Prayer. Like, we wrote the song, and I, and I think that they demoed it. 
And, um, you know, John, they had written like a hundred songs. You know, I was only a co-writer on a couple of them. And um, he wasn't really that enthusiastic about it because he thought it was sentimental. Like it was a little bit slow or mid-tempo-y when he wanted to rock. And uh, that was his vision. And um, so Richie and I literally got on our hands and knees half joking, half for real, and begged him to cut it. Just try it. Just cut it. And uh, with the magic of what was happening in Vancouver at the time with with uh, their producer, Bruce Fairburn, the late, great Bruce Fairburn and Bob Rock, they brought it to life in a way that was way beyond my imagination. I mean, I was just like, wow. But at the end of the day, that song... And I don't know if you had lots of songs before that had that distinct Desmond Child sort of signature of the modulation. Now, well, there's different components. There were different components. One is that I'd had a, a song two and a half years before that I had written for Jim Steinman for Bonnie Tyler called If You Were a Woman and I Was a Man. But they released it. It went nowhere. I mean, I shouldn't say that it was like a like a number one song in France, but it didn't take off globally. So right. I knew that that was a hit melody. So I brought that to the table as well. And um, so it was kind of one of those things where uh, I didn't want any of that hit to go to waste. So <laughs> there shall be no so, hit so, lost. You know, one of the things that um, Picasso always said, because he had a lot of very similar looking work, right? The Cubist right. Uh, look. And he said, self-repetition is style. So it's not redundancy, it's style. So exactly. I always I always believed in that. And then anywhere I could, I would uh, throw in those chords, <laughs> you know, like... Um, I think we did one called These Times Are Hard for Lovers, you know, with uh, John Waite. And then, uh, you know, it was kind of like, uh, you know, I remember Diane Warren once called me and she said, hey, can you stop using those chords? I'm getting sick of them. (laughs) Yeah. The the fact of the matter is I totally agree with that statement by Picasso because I've been playing the same guitar licks in the same, you know, for the so many years, but it's become my style at the end of the day. It's the same solo. It's, you know, I just put it in different songs. So there you go. Good trick. Thank you, Picasso. Um, my first question should have been to you, who haven't you co-written with? <laughs> because every name that you come up well, with is huge. You know, I, I'm sorry that, you know, I had gone up to write with Van Halen uh, when uh, uh, Dave, uh, David Lee Roth was not in the group and I think they were between singers and uh, I went up there to write and sure enough uh, Dave uh, when that I was up there and drove up there you know in his top-down Ferrari and all that and then just made a fuss and it just ruined our session so uh, oh. I'm you know when I heard about Eddie you know I just was sorry that we never really you know, actually got to write a song, but I was there, you know, ready to go. Um, <laughs> but I mean, there are a lot of people that I, I would have loved to collaborate with and do because 
first of all, I, I'm genre defying. It's like, I don't care about genre. I care about the message, care about what the lyrics are saying and how they bring out the character of the artist that I'm working with. So that's what I focus on first. I mean, my mentor, Bob Crew, who was the producer of the Four Seasons, co-producer with Bob Gaudio and co-wrote many of those songs. Bob Crew was a famous uh, producer that took me under his wing when I kind of, Desmond Chalon Rouge broke up and I was lost and he was like a father figure to me. And um, he told me that the most important thing was that the lyrics are the script and the music is the score for the script. Like if you're doing a movie, the score always is done after to bring out the emotion of what's happening in the script. So if all of a sudden someone's dropping a tear, you know, you're going to hear minor chord, you know? And so the same thing goes for any song. Uh, The lyric dictates the melody, you know, because I go, uh, the lyrics dictate the melody. And then the content dictates the mood of the chords. You know, there's, you know, dissonant chords, major chords, minor chords. And so that brings out the meaning. Then, you know, like, there are sound effects that can bring out the meaning of uh, and paint a picture. Like in a song I had uh, had co-written with Draco Rosa for um, Ricky Martin called Live in La Vida Loca. Heard of that one? Maybe uh, once or twice or a thousand times. Going into the second verse, there's a gong. Like everything drops out and there's a gong, you know, like a Chinese gong. And then uh, he sings, woke up in New York City in a funky cheap hotel. You already picture that, you know, kind of boudoir in Chinatown, everything's red, beaded curtains. Uh, Just the sound of the gong evoked the whole picture that brought those lyrics to life. The reincurring theme though, in a lot of your songs is about life, love. I mean, obviously those two things always go hand in hand and you, you tend, it doesn't, like you said, doesn't matter what genre it is. You seem to always bring those two very important aspects into songs. Fair. Well, I I think also hope is a very important word. Um, I think that the songs I have collaborated on have a hopeful feeling, even if they're naughty or even if it's sad, there's kind of like a light at the end of the tunnel. It's not just dead end. I mean, you know, some music is very nihilistic. I hope that's the word where it's like nihilistic, dark, yeah. dark and it ends in suicide, you know. But I, you know, I came from a very poor uh, single mom immigrant from Cuba um, uh, background. We lived in the projects of Liberty City. I don't know if you remember a movie called Moonlight. But that's where I grew up in that project. In, in Florida, right? In Miami, yeah. And my mom worked at Burger King. And then she'd come home at night, like at 10 30, 11 o'clock at night, with the soggy leftover whoppers. And we'd just take two tops and uh, recreate it so that the bottom, which was soggy, we'd throw out. 
And um, <laughs> that, that's what we ate for, you know, a couple of years. That she, that's where she worked. And she was a songwriter, too. And she lived for her music. And, you know, we were, you know, um, kind of my my younger brother and I were like latchkey children. So it's like, I don't want to go down. I don't want to go back to the ghetto. You know, I want to be successful. I want to live the American dream. I want all good things for myself, my family, and the world. So that's why I have a hopeful stance, even though I've, had, I've gone through a lot of very unhappy things. Man, that's a little bit like the, the theme of Scarface. The world is yours and more, Tony Montana. <laughs> Say hello to my little friend. There you go. I can't believe you didn't have a song on that soundtrack as well. No, I lived it. You know, you did. <laughs> At one that point, La Vida uh, Loca. My, yeah, exactly. Um, my husband and I had moved to Miami Beach, and we were living on a house on the water, and everything was like you know, Scarface with the boat in the back, and you know, four four houses on the same street, and we were like a Ricky Martin machine. So you know, it was. That was the life, you know, and then when our sons were born, we realized we couldn't stay in Florida because um, Curtis, at that time, Curtis wasn't allowed to be a legal parent. So we moved to California and it took two years for us to uh, finally get that. And then we, you know, eventually were married in 2013. So we have a whole movie about it called To the Story of Roman and Nero. And you can see the link for it at tothedocumentary.com. And two, TWO is based on a poem that John Bon Jovi wrote. He's one of the godfathers. And he wrote this, this poem called Two, which is featured in the, in the, uh, in the movie. I, I haven't made, honestly, you know, I, I've had heights. I've lost a lot of money, you know, selling properties before I shouldn't have. I've overspent. I've done crazy things. I've invested in in young artists that I shouldn't have. I I projected my own self into them, thinking that they were like me, but they really weren't. Um, and uh, well, what, you know, what parts of you? I mean, what parts of you do you think that you look for when you're sort of meeting an artist, meeting a new co-writer that you were in? What parts of yourself do you see in that artist that that actually you get inspired by? Well, you know, a lot of it's projection because some somebody comes in front of you and like in the case of Ricky Martin, who you see there, he was already a star, a child star. And he was already having huge success uh, with Draco Rosa and Casey Porter, song called Un, Dos, Tres, Maria. I mean, I saw video footage of Buenos Aires, they stopped the city. It was a million people came to see him in the middle of, of the city. All I mean, it's, it was bigger than Trump's inauguration. Let me just tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> There's no I doubt mean, about that. Aerial view was like crazy. And so wow. I knew I had to work with him. And so the idea was to help cross him over to the English international market. And I think, uh, you know, I got together with Draco and we, we started with Cup of Life, which was uh, the World Cup theme 1998. And uh, it became number one in 23 countries, like the day he performed it in the show. I mean, it was so crazy. And um, then, you know, 
he sang it at the Grammys and and that's when Madonna went crazy and the whole world woke up to the Latin music explosion. And he was the one that ignited it with the song that, that Draco and I wrote, The Cup of Life. Then we followed that up with Live in La Vida Loca. So it was relentless for, you know, those and I think you did years. your job of breaking him in. Yeah, I definitely think you guys, yeah. mission, I, mission I, accomplished. <laughs> I mean, the, the previous Latin music explosion was with Gloria Stefan you know, um, conga and all of that. But then many years went by uh, and there wasn't a star like she was that really broke through until Ricky came along. And so I see almost like in Latin music, Live in La Vida Loca is, you know, was number one for like five weeks. And then you see the bookend, which is Despacito, was number one for 37 weeks. And it had way more Spanish in it than live in la vida loca i mean i had the record company tell me to do an english version it was like it is the english version <laughs> well people are going to understand that they, you know and so when the record company put out the first ad it said live in la vida loca then in much bigger letters underneath it said live in the crazy life like what oh, come on wow. like who doesn't understand yeah. like May, i grew up in I california got, i think i i knew that <laughs> Where I got the title was because of El Pollo Loco. You know, I said, I'm Get gonna like write, I'm gonna write a song that would be on the you know, the lyrics would be on the menu of El Pollo Loco. Like people will know will know what that means, you know. So um so that's where oh Live in La Vida Loco came out. But nothing else in the song, n- 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 nothing else in the song is in Spanish. All right. Even and, and nothing her skin's the color of mocha. Mocha is not a Spanish word. It's actually an Arabic word. There you go. It's the little twist that kept uh, Pollo, Yo- Pollo Loco uh, from going after you. You're living the American dream from what we've heard so far. You're in Nashville with, uh, with your husband, with your two kids. You made a documentary about it. And um, now... How does it feel to be a songwriter knowing that you have that sort of platform to sit upon and you see what's going on in the world today? Well, I'm very, I mean, last night I actually woke up in the middle of the night, like feeling shaky, you know, like, oh my God. It's like, I just felt like I was losing it. I said, oh my God, did the COVID hit me? (laughs) <laughs> you know, it's like I haven't left my house in four months. It's like, how did it reach me? I didn't I didn't feel well. And I realized I'd been so stressed by the whole election process, by the, you know, vice presidential, the presidential and then the vice presidential debate. We should be moving, you know, respectfully, cautiously towards each other instead of like clinging to the edges of madness on the ends. Yeah. You know, we just we just, you know. The left and the right are getting so extreme, their butts are touching. And, you know, there has to be something that keeps us together. And, you know, going back to music, I think music is one of those things. Because you can go to speak to somebody that's, you know, they think that they're all, you know, America and all this kind of stuff. But guess what? They love living on a prayer. Right. What can you say about that? That's what it unifies everybody. I'm telling you, it, your songs it, do that. And if you go to a Bon Jovi concert, you see every walk of life there and every yeah. age. You know, you see very old people and 
two-year-olds with their, you know, ear blocks on, on the shoulders of their parents, you know, and the parents have the other fist up in the air, like rocking out. So when you, when you go and, you know, Bon Jovi always waits to the very last encore to sing living on a prayer because no one's going to leave that stadium. It could be midnight until that song is sung. So, and then when they do sing it, you can't even hear the band. The people are singing it so loud. They're screaming it out like it's like their life depends on it. Is and that, that, that's kind of like that kind of passion is rare in, you know, to find in a song. And I'm very grateful, you know, to my co-writers, John Bon Jovi and Richie Sambora, because, you know, our chemistry together and, you know, it just everything was going for us when we wrote those songs. And def- well, everything was going for you in such a such a big time as well, because it was such a string of hits back then. If you think about that was right around the same time as and I don't know how far the years were spanned apart, but it was the same time as the Joan Jet, I hate myself for loving you. You know, a few years old, but Joan Jet seems to always reinvent herself and you pushed it on a new medium with Sunday night football because you basically did you rewrite the song and did that Carrie Underwood singing now or how did that whole yeah I mean originally it was you know way out day for Monday night then they moved Monday night football to Sunday so it was readapted and for years it's Faith Hill that sang it and then Pink did it one year and then uh it went to Carrie Underwood and because she's a country artist they kind of said oh well you should write a new one her and her team, we, let's write another one that's more Carrie Underwood-ish. And I think they tried it for a few years, but by popular demand, it's been back. And uh, it was last year, they had actually Joan uh, Jett playing guitar on it. Yeah, I you saw know? that. And then there's a new opening now. I didn't see Joan on it, but it's like, wow. It's like very impressive. <laughs> um, and so, I, you know, and I worked with Carrie Underwood. I produced her first hit number one hit record called inside your heaven when she was uh, coming out of uh, American idol. And so I, I have a, a strong connection with her, you know, from that eyes run deep. I see, man, I did not, I just see it of, of all this. Cause I say there's so much information about the songs that you've written that that one flew under the radar for me because I have, you know, working with share as far as female artists go, you, you, wrote with Cher a bunch of songs. You also um, are very uh, happy to have written with Barbara Streisand, and that's been recent. Now, yeah, was there I, a time I, before? No, I mean, I've been pitching songs to Barbara Streisand for, you know, decades, and they were always rejected. They weren't right. And um, it really took diving into her music was asked she was making an album called that called walls and it was her kind of uh two years ago it was like her her statement her protest album and she you know co-wrote with you know john shanks and jonas mirin carol bear sager jay landers um uh stephen dorf i mean like great great songwriters and uh jay landers who uh, is her music supervisor executive 
uh, asked me if I'd tr try writing a song. And, um, you know, I call him the Barbara Whisperer. Um, <laughs> uh, Is that what it I, takes? <laughs> I, 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 I immersed myself in her music from the beginning to the present. And I started to really get it in my bones. Like I started to understand what vowel sounds really make her voice shine. What melod melodic jumps, you know, lift her music the way it does, you know, and gives us goosebumps. So I um, remembered the first time I ever saw Barbara Streisand was in a movie called Funny Girl. And I was 15 years old. I think it was 1967. Um, and um, there's a scene in Funny Girl. I think it's, you know, kind of midway through the movie where she kind of gets her groove on and she get, jumps on this tugboat on its way to Manhattan and she's going to make everything happen for herself and she sings a song called Don't Rain on My Parade. During the course of that song, the tugboat passes in front of the Statue of Liberty, and she's holding a, a bunch of flowers up like it's the torch, and you see the two images of the two of them together. And I remembered, you know, it's like, wow, the, you know, because Barbara is, is like Lady Liberty to me, her politics and how much she cares, you know, right. about equality and a about immigration and everything. And the Statue of Liberty is the, is the symbol that welcomes immigrants to our, um, to our shores. And in fact, I don't know if you've noticed, but for the last four years, she's kind of disappeared off the map. <laughs> in fact, mm -hmm. there was a congressman that wanted to rip out the, the bronze uh, plaque at the bottom of it that says, give me your tired and your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. He wanted to rip it out because he said, no, that she didn't mean that. You know, she wasn't about that. You know, she was about freedom. I, I mean, it's crazy. He tried to put that through, you know, Congress or something. And, uh, you know, that got shut down. But I felt like, you know, the Statue of Liberty is female. She's strength. She's about, you know, like welcoming, you know, people to our shores, the people that dared to cross an ocean. Uh, like my father, he, after World War II, he made it to England. From England, he took a ferry, uh, not a ferry boat, um, kind of like this um, immigrant boat, and it pulled into uh, New York Harbor. And through the fog, he was standing there, and he, all of a sudden he saw the Statue of Liberty emerge and, in the fog, and he said it brought him to his knees. There's another song right there. You haven't. You are, you've already written. Well, I wrote it. I put it all into Lady Liberty, and it's on her album Walls. It's uh, I think track number five, and and I solely wrote it, and then she and I co-produced it together. And it was incredible to be in the studio with a legend like her. You know, I think she had made already like 37 albums, and right. um, I think almost every album she ever made went to number one instantly. And, um, you know, and when she went to sing and she went reaching for those notes, it's like goosebumps. She sang it like, like she did people or Papa, can you hear me? I mean, she sang with that tone and it's like, wow, Streisand has arrived. It was so incredible. 
And Great so I, I really um, would encourage people to go and listen to it. It may not be their favorite style of music, but you can't n- deny the power of someone who actually lives the words that she's singing. And um, for these, these times, because it's, there's a lyric in it that goes uh, something about uh, that terrible September when we stopped and cried together, remember. That's, yeah, 9-11, in a line. That's when we all stopped being, you know, assholes and became Americans together. And uh, we need to get back to that. Good, well put. Man, do you, do you ever get to go into the studio and see the moment people recording your song, uh, your songs, while they're doing, have there ever been any moments be, when you're behind the glass and you and you see that performance, and you go, "Shit, this is going to be a big one." I'm so focused on the uh, kind of perfection of the performance that I'm like, you know, not really sitting back and enjoying the music. I I don't do that until I finally put the vocal together. But like in Streisand's case, she sang one warm up track and then two, like full out, and then sh- she left. That was it. I, all I had was three okay. tracks. That's all she needed. I, re, I remember hearing a story that for the song, well, I don't know if this is true or not, but I Bob Crew told me this, and he was around in those days, and he knew her. And when she went to record people, there was an orchestra, full orchestra, that was waiting for her. And she had that, that limo just go round and around and around to like quarter to when the musicians were supposed to leave. And she walked in with a big fur hat and a big fur coat. And she walked in front of the mic and, uh, you know, everybody straightened up. The, the orchestra director started the orchestra. She sang it and she walked out. That, that's what you hear when you hear the record. I want because, to take because she could. Yeah. Not many people can like that the, the only other story i heard of someone doing a one ticker like that was whitney houston she came in she walked into the studio she sang the track she took the headphones off she walked out um i don't know if you ever got to write a song with her no i never got on that uh, you know it was like so competitive like every great writer in the world you know like focused on that and kept sending Clive tracks, which he'd put every song for Whitney on hold. I think he had like 500 songs on hold because I suspect he didn't want those songs out there being cut by Mariah Carey or somebody else that would be competitive. So you always live with that hope that she was going to cut your song because Clive had it on hold. So you had everybody walking around saying, hey, I've got a hold with Whitney Houston. And they go, well, so do I. Like, <laughs> oh my God. So he was cornering the market on hit songs. Good for him. Well, there you are. Yes. I heard, he's, I heard he's still collecting songs for Whitney Houston. <laughs> Just in case. Just in case. 
That's funny, man. The thing is, uh, what? Well, by the way, folks, let me just uh, tell us what tell the crowd what we're doing in the chat. Uh, you are listening to In the Trenches. We have a legendary songwriter Desmond Child with us today. Thank you very much for supporting the show and uh, hit that subscribe button. Of course, if you'd like to uh, sort of uh, support us more, maybe listen to this. Hello, Tessia, the intro voice of In the Trenches with Ryan Roxy. And we really hope you're enjoying the podcast. In each of our almost 50 episodes so far, we have brought you many full-length insider interviews with today's hardest-working rock musicians and entertainers. Now, we are ready to take In The Trenches to the next level, and we want you involved. We are planning a number of once-in-a-lifetime episode specials, interviewing some of the major names in rock and roll, and we want you to be in the show. Here is how it works. In each special episode, we have a maximum of three on-stage passes available. You'll be invited into our virtual studio and be able to ask our special guest your own question face-to-face. Your on-screen experience with the guest will be immortalized and broadcast for the world to see. Take a look at the names of our next special guests and recording times and get your VIP on-stage pass now. But there's even more good news. We are also inviting exactly four lucky souls to a private after-show fireside chat with Ryan and our special guest of the week. By securing your backstage pass now, you will hang out for 20 minutes after the show and make lifelong memories. So, Ryan Roxy, who are the special guests for the upcoming In the Trenches specials? So we have been talking uh, so many of these iconic female characters. Let's move on to another one, Alice Cooper. Wait, not female, but it has a female's name, but your whole experience with Alice Cooper, because I play your songs. I've been playing your songs for over 25 years. I've been, um, wow. That There's a shot of the two of you. Is that just recently? Where, where did you get that shot? I don't, I don't, I've never seen that shot. That's because it's an exclusive. It's from Kyler Clark, Alice's assistant. And I think he just took it recently. Want to put that shot back up, Vic? Hmm. Okay, I, could you little, go. I could use a little face tune. Tell him to send no, me those okay. shots. I'll fix them up and then uh, and then uh, then he can have them back. The good news is he lives in Nashville, so he can drop them off by the compound. All right. and <laughs> But of course, I'll get that to you. I want to talk a little bit about the song Poison because it is one of Alice's uh, biggest songs. We've played it, uh, again, like I said, for over 25 years. That, um, that modulating pre-chorus is one of the most popular things in music and frustrating. I always, I, I credit that pre-course for getting me into the band, Desmond, just so you know, because the day that the auditions happened, uh, every all the other guitar players were messing up that pre-course modulation. And I buckled down. I said, if I just play those chords right, I think I got this gig. So how did that whole process come about with that song? And had you already been working together? No, I mean, I got asked to make this record and, um, you know, I was hired to, to write and produce the whole record with him. And um, that particular song, you know, I, I was I remember being in a little hotel room in North Carolina and we had a little rented keyboard. And then, you know, I I was thinking of it like Phantom of the Opera or something. It was like. Because the whole thing was 
you know, anything having to do with Alice, re remember that Alice Cooper is a character. Is it theatrical, iconic, you know, global archetype? The person behind it is Vincent Fournier. And so he explained to me that, you know, Alice Cooper has rules. There are rules. And one is if he's bad, then he has to pay the price because he's a preacher's son. So there's always a punishment. If you cut a head off a doll, then you go in the guillotine. And so, right. And so mm -hmm. in that particular, I want it to sound like this mad, you know, you know, operatic Bach, something that kept modulating. You didn't know it was going modulating up and down that I don't need, I can't even play it myself. I don't know how I managed to plunk that <laughs> out, but I did. And, um, you know, we recorded on a little cassette, which I have somewhere. And uh, I, I think that that's, you know, that was kind of like one of the best musical moments ever. And, you know, working with Alice, degree. Alice is like a, a lyricist and top line writer, like unbelievable lyricist. And um, he understands his audience. He understands his character. He never uh, disappoints, you know. Yeah. Uh, I, I, you I know, that. So he cares about his product and um, he cares about his audience. And he upholds this kind of dark archetype because in entertainment, we need warriors and angels, Apollos like John Bon Jovi, but we need devils to show mm -hmm. us our dark side, like Bella Lugosi, um, Ozzy Osbourne, Marilyn Manson. They, Alice, Cooper. They, Alice Cooper, because uh, Alice was the one that, you know, he invented glam rock. He invented this edgy, dark, you know, goth place. And it excited our imagination. And so uh, that's, that's, you can't ask for more. You know, that's why we love horror movies. That's why we love adventure movies. We, that's why we love Bond villains. You know, can't wait to see the Bond villain again because it reminds us of our dark side and it kind of lets us live vicariously through the dark side. And then we don't have to be bad. We can stay good. But deep down inside, he's, re he, he's reflecting the reptilian dark side of our DNA and nature. Us. Yeah. And so the... You know, there. That's why society has progressed because there's always been those people that have this dark side, and then there are always the majority of people are are believe in hope and goodness and have empathy, and so the the tension of those opposites is where art and history is made. But you know, Alice and I have stayed friends because he's the sweetest, most loving, wonderful person ever. And, um, you know, we, we actually are working together again. We, 
recorded a duet um, that's going to come out next year. And so I'm looking for an action movie to, to get it into because because I have my deal at BMG. And so um, I've decided to put out all these duets uh, or our invitations. Like I host a song and then bring, you know, in someone I did one last month with Countess Luann from the Real Housewives of New York, a song that I co-wrote with Carol Bearsager and Jay Landers uh, called Viva La Diva. And uh, they uh-huh. featured it in the, in the, finale episode of uh of it and the it was two like of you are right there yeah she is the most beautiful woman and so sweet and you know i had never seen the show i'm confessing right now i only saw it for the first time when i was on it like a few weeks ago i never it's seen a it before, lot of yelling I had, no, I had no preconception <laughs> and uh, about what that show i mean it's so add the way it's like yeah. cut with people fighting it's like almost impossible, you know, and my wife uh, listens to it. My wife listens to it. And you know, a lot of times she'll be getting ready for work and she'll be having it on the computer and she'll be listening. And I just go, who's fighting now? It just, was there a lot of screaming and yelling in your episode? Yes. But you know, it's like people putting her down, not believing that, you know, she was actually going to be able to sing as well as she did. And uh, you know, being real bitches, you know, and um, and, you know, she had she had a very rough year last year. And so she's kind of like was trying to, re- you know, to come into some kind of brighter, happier place for herself. Uh, but I mean, that's the show. If you don't have that, then you don't have a show. But she I'm grateful. I'm grateful that that she that they. um they got into it and then they featured it. So, you know, I just, I just love her and she's just the best fun. She's, you know, the best fag hag any, any gay guy could ever have. (laughs) Well, here we are. Here we are uh, hanging out with Desmond child and we are talking about uh, the bad year that she had, but you know what? We've all had a pretty bad year. Let's admit it. And, uh, 2020 was shaping up to be a, a friggin' great year until all this crap hit. Um, I don't know about you. I was in Australia and New Zealand and, you know, Alice doing a tour of, of that. And then uh, all of a sudden we came back on the plane and basically the world shut down. I know that you uh, had a lot of things planned for 2020. I want to hear what uh, is planned and what uh, has been released and what are you putting off until 2021 because I know about the, uh, the autobiography and you have um, that you're working on. Is that works? Is that coming out? Yeah, it's, uh, it's coming out next, next year. And it's called living on a prayer, big songs, big life with David Ritz, my co-writer. And um, he's great. He's done so many. He's yeah. yeah, He's done. He just came out with uh, Lenny Kravitz book. I mean, he did, you know, Jesus, Marvin Gaye, Aretha Franklin. Uh, I mean, it just goes on. He's written like 60 well, or he, more. He's basically the Desmond Child of writing books because he's, exactly. <laughs> he's written with everybody. Yeah. And so uh, the day we met, I had seen an, an interview. I didn't even know he had written Joe's book. I had seen an article in the New York Times where he had written an unauthorized 
biography of Aretha Franklin because he had didn't, done her biography, like ghost written it, called uh, From These Roots. But he was very un- unsatisfied with that book because in the end, ev- you know, everything was softened and, you know, all that. So he just went for it and uh, wrote this, like, massive book called Respect. And when I read the review of that, I said, no, I have to work with him. So he agreed to meet me. And within two questions, he had me in tears. You know, so. Yeah, I knew obviously. He was, he he knows how to get right to the heart of the matter and how to push your button to the truth button and boom. And so um, it's been really four and a half years of us working on it. And I'm, I'm finally ready. And um, that's, I wanted it to come out this year, but I decided to hold off. I, you know, I'm, I'm going to publish, I'm going to publish it myself. Um, you know, there are all these, you know, Amazon and Ingram and, and uh, Kindle, they all have programs that anybody can put out a book. Um, you know, I had all these different deals offered to me, but in the end, I didn't want to let go of the control of the book. I just, I'm too personal. So I think I'm going to do it that way. Um, And then um, right now, October 16th, Desmond Child and Rouge is re-releasing the the two. um, The new material. And then uh, October 23rd, we have the remake of Our Love is Insane, which turned out amazing. It's like recorded from scratch. And so we've started our website, uh, Desmond Child and uh, at Desmond Child and Rouge, and then my uh, my Instagram and wait, that was DesmondChildandRouge.com, but yep. Instagram, the socials is Desmond Child and Rouge, and uh, right that's up there. Yeah, like that. yeah. and um, I'm like so hooked on Instagram. It's not it's not healthy, like. I it isn't up. healthy. There's actually been studies I proving say, that it's not healthy. I, I think am it's too. not healthy. Maybe that's why I woke up so shaky. I mean, I stay up way too late just chasing this one and following that one and answering that question and, you know, going all through it. You know, I just love it because, you know, now I have 220,000 close friends. That's great to hear. Well, I, you know what? It's time just a couple more questions because and these are questions from your fans because it is time for let the people speak secret sauce style so i am going to bring to the screen uh miss ashley ashley come on in and uh hello you desmond meet ashley ashley meet desmond i am going to go out while ashley uh asks you a question that she's been wanting to ask for a while all right here you hi how are you Hi, your royal purpleness. <laughs> Half the house is purple, parts blue, parts red. It's pretty cool. <laughs> Love so, it. <laughs> um, my question, I was wondering um, about your writing process. So do you sit and write down every day or do you just let it flow? And do you have any ideas how to get past when you just kind of feel like afraid of your words? Well, the way I get out of it is because I co-write. 
Um, you know, and that way I rise to the occasion because I don't want to let my co-writer down. And so when, when it's time to write, the ideas come flooding in because I'm also a little bit competitive. So I want to make sure I have the best ideas. And so, uh, that gives me energy and, um, you know, I'm a bit bossy too. And so, uh, if I were to just sit down at the piano right now, I would like probably go blank. You know, I just, you know, I just, it would bore me. I'd bore myself to tears. But when you're engaging and co-writing, ideas are going back and forth. You're making each other laugh and there's energy and uh, there's a sacred circle around you. Um, and everything stops, nothing exists, but you and your co-writer and that song. And the song is kind of working itself out in the subconscious of both. And, and it's the pieces are being flinged out of our souls towards each other. And that mm -hmm. excitement is what makes a hit, I think. That makes sense. Do you ever get, um, yeah, stifled by words, but your your answer of like co-writing and rising up to the, the other person's. That's, uh, my, that's the way I get out of it. But I, I really, you know, one of the things that I studied and learned and, you know, different workshops and therapy is that the things that we love most are the things that we sabotage ourselves most at. Because that's the way we play out the unsettled scores of our past. And we take it out on ourselves. Sometimes we take it out on our dreams. And so um, that's what happens. I think with writer's block, because it's, it's what you want most is to express yourself. And then all of a sudden you're the comp, the complexities of your troubles block block that so i think that you always have to be working on yourself and i'm not one that ever believed that when you're unhappy then that's when you write best an unhappy song you know we all know what heartbreak feels like come on so it's your creative imagination that can make a like i love that song by diane warren she's one of my best friends but a huge inspiration called Unbreak My Heart, mm -hmm. you know, and the way that Unbreak My Heart, like the way it lifts up, it just makes your, you want to cry. And it's like exploding. So she, and she is self-admittedly never been in love. But with her creative imagination, she brings the love song to life like no one ever, almost like the way Emily Dickinson wrote love songs to who knows like an imagined lover. And so I think that, um, you know, words have power. And uh, I learned from Bob Crew that rhyming, alliteration, tying one line to the other, all of that glue pulls the listener into the story and doesn't let them go. I love that. Thank you. Very good. I, you know what, Ashley, I have to, I have to give you the hook and pull you off, but uh, thanks for the question. 
very much. But uh, we'll we'll talk to you soon. Buy your and, purpleness. Buy your purpleness. <laughs> but I mean, honestly, Desmond, there has to be some days that you're you know you're going to write with a huge name, but you're in a crap mood. You're not in the best of spirits. So how do you get yourself up for that? Or or does it ever happen? Do you do you always pump yourself up somehow when you're going into a writing session? No, I mean it's just like. I wake up every day and and I'm grateful I'm I'm not waking up in the ghetto. So it's like I've got motivation and I go in, I charge in, I'm a warrior, I charge in wanting to do my best and I get energy and I inspire the other person no matter what's going on in my life. I try not to get on the phone during a session, you know, unless it's absolute emergency cuz you can get pulled away from like the essence of what you're doing. Uh, if you start talking to your manager about how things went wrong with such and such a thing. Um, I, I just, you know, I take it seriously. It's my job. And when it's time to write, it's time to write. And so, you know, everything is out, all the bad mood, any bad things that all, you know, it's like, if you're going to go do brain surgery, you can't stop, you can't start thinking about how your wife pissed you <laughs> off, you know, cause then that scalpel could just go in a little too. Very bad deep. brain. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the very it's bad not brain. good. <laughs> oh man. Well, I, by the I, way, I'm watching uh, uh, Ratchet, the television Ratchet. series. I haven't seen Ratchet. that. No. It's the story of nurse Ratchet. And okay. it's We're always looking for new shows. Oh my God, it's produced by Ryan Murphy and it's the most exquisitely costumed and detailed um, show I've ever seen. I mean, it, I mean, it's, it's beyond and it's really suspense, suspenseful and gruesome and crazy. And it's all set in a madhouse and oh, it's so good. You gotta watch that. <laughs> I'm watching the new season of Shit's Creek, so I, I love that too. I don't know if you've seen oh, any of that. Love it, like right, love it so go. much, and it's so deserving. And I'm so happy for all of the accolades that they're receiving. Perfect, perfect. One more guest to come up and ask a song. We're gonna have Joey come up. Joey, I, I don't know if you can if you can beat Ashley's question because it was very well. It's not a competition, but Joey, meet Desmond. Desmond, meet Joey. Uh, maybe you guys have met, but uh, here you go. Have a dude, dude. You're like my, you know, my biggest fan. It's like, you know, is that your bedroom? Like you're looking up at my pictures and stuff at night. Desmond, it's all phony. I, I wish that would be the case, but this is my office. And quickly, um, I quickly pulled up the picture so that that you like it. You know, I my my I had a brother named Joey, and he passed away when he was 24 years old in 1991. He died of AIDS, and so any any person. My father's name was Joe, so anybody with the name Joey is like a friend of mine. It's actually a chosen name. I have a, I'm from Germany, and I have an unpronounceable Norwegian first name, which is Jörn. So I had to switch it to Joey sure. when I moved to the States. Sure. sure. <laughs> so mm -hmm. I, have a, I have a big question for you. So you've done a number of things outside of the music business, right? So you said you had your affairs with real estate investments but you also made a, a, a pretty involved movie 
um, about your family. And I can imagine there are perhaps a couple of other projects that you pursued, maybe on an entrepreneurial front, maybe where well, you something else. Speaking of uh, Swedes, one of my close friends and partners, Andreas Carlson, um, who, you know, wrote with the Backstreet, you know, for the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC and all that back in the day when I first met him. Uh, he and I have been working for many years on telling the story of Lou Pearlman and the making of the boy band revolution in Orlando. And we've, you know, we've had five deals, you know, got so close, but now we finally have a real deal with ABC networks and uh, the, the, it's just all going forward. It's called Transcon, the making of Lou Pearlman and the boy band revolution. So one of the reasons I got into writing musicals and doing these things is because, you know, I was going to go co-writing, let's say, with my dear friends at Rock Mafia. And then we co-wrote, you know, some great, a hit for uh, Zed called Beautiful Now. But we also co-wrote a song with Selena Gomez. But, you know, that song wasn't a single. So it's like, wow, I want to be a buyer, not a seller. I want to be somebody who chooses the songs that go into something, not be there with my hat in my hand, hope, please like my song, you know? And so that's why I learned to, in this new world, to think big and to try to go for it, even though it's like, you know, if it were that easy, everyone would be making their own TV shows and movies and all of that. It's, it's, it's daunting. You have to have luck on your side too. And a really great idea. So What we we're, we're, what we're going to do is, you know, of course, there's the songs from those period, but we're going to write new songs and we're going to write the music that goes along with it. And we're going to do a soundtracks, you know, that go with it. And it'll keep me busy for a couple of years. Wow. Got it. Okay, so you're you're mostly active still in the music business, but you are you are looking at different sides and perspectives in it. That's great. Well, I once saw. um Dolly Parton on Larry King many years ago. And she's always so beautiful and poised. And she's, and he says, what, why did you open Dollywood? Why did you do this? Why'd you do that? I mean, you've done it all. Why do you keep going? And she says, because I want to be an active participant in the entertainment business. And it's like an active participant. And you can be an active participant to your dying day. You know, you just have to keep trying, even if it doesn't go anywhere. It's like the, the guy who's like 100 years old and he decides to start taking Italian lessons. It's like, why? You know, because he wants to. Because, because, and I do things because I want to, you know. And you can't, you, you can't start getting logical about these things. You have to go with your passion. Yeah. Yeah, and you have to apply it to your future. I think what every fan is looking to, of course, they like talking about what you've done in the past, but I am mostly interested in what you're going to do next. That's where the, right, that's what's coming up in life. So I I totally understand that. That's, uh, that is super critical. And I hope that uh, we get to hear yeah, some well, more soon. I'm going to, you know, Desmond Child and Rouge has come back together. We have a new single. We're going to continue releasing singles you know, till forever, just dropping singles into the Spotify space. And we have the backing of BMG. I have my, my um, duets coming, the one with Alice Cooper. 
Um, I'm trying to see if I can get Scott Stapp to do one with me. And, um, you know, I'll just keep keep going, you know, and um, maybe my little world will be almost like this cool little, you know, cabaret or bar or something where everyone says, oh, we, we should go there and hang out. And that would be my little world of songs. And, and people are invited to get up, you know, like a little karaoke bar and, and sing. And so I'm thinking of it like that because, you know, I'm not starting my, yeah, that, that turned out good. And I have, well, uh, that's what I wanted to talk about, but I was going to wait for a second to talk about that because it was, but our producer put up the picture because he thinks it's important, but I was coming up with the name of your Desmond's dive bar. It's, it's there. Desmond's the name is dive right there. Bar. I, I love do, that. It happened Desmond's right now. Bar. I'm keeping that. Desmond's <laughs> there you dive go. bar. Dive right, bar. We, I love that. At least I co-wrote something with Desmond Child. <laughs> I'm at the stage. I'm like, you know, I just want to have fun and keep making music and being an active participant. An active participant. What Dolly Parton said couldn't be more true. I love that. I love that line a lot. And speaking what about truth. What else are we going to do? No, you know, we have to, we have to do what we love and just keep doing it. Even though we know it's going to fail. Who cares? (laughs) Fuck it. Well, you know what? You brought up a good point. Uh, Joey, thank you very much for coming on and asking that question. Joey, Joey, you're going to get the hook now because we're talking the truth. We're talking with Desmond Child. You're listening to In the Trenches. If you've been listening to it on Apple or Spotify, what are you doing there? Get in and watch it on because there's so many visuals here uh, to look at. And you can get in the chat as well. In the Trenches, uh, this is one of our Secret Sauce episodes. And of course, uh, I am your host, Ryan Roxy. And we've been talking the truth, but Alice has a saying that says, never let the truth get in the way of a good story. So there's two quick things that we ask if they're facts or fiction or some sort of embellishment on this. All right. And we, we look to the artist for the truth. So the first never let the truth get in the way of a good story is this. Um, It's the urban myth true that dude looks like a lady came from a story where Steven Tyler saw Vince Neil from behind and mistook him for a woman. That is true. What fact? I had no idea. So, (laughs) and when it went into co now, did he come in with that story to write the song or did it just happen? It was the very, within the first 10 minutes of me, not even, within the first three minutes of me walking in this big airplane hangar where they had set up the stage show. And then I walked in and Steven came up and they, they, the, the town car, whatever had just dropped me off, walked in big doors and there was Steven. And then there was the stage and there was a hundred guitars all looking like, uh, you know, like an army of guitars on the, on the floor and I heard some music, and then Stephen said, "Hey, come on back here." And so Joe had done this backwards guitar that went da 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 da. Then Stephen started going cruising for the ladies, da da cruising for the ladies. And uh, I had not said one word yet, and I said, "That's really bad." <laughs> and Joe, like his arms, like never crossed so you know like looking back at me like this and uh steven who's a more of a people pleaser said well 
when I first started singing that hook, I was singing Dude Looks Like a Lady. And I said, what? How did Dude Looks Like a Lady? That's a hit title. And Joe said, well, but we don't know what that means. And we don't want to insult the gay community. And I said, no, I'm gay. It would not insult the gay community. How did you come up with Dude Looks Like a Lady? And then he told me the story, how they had all, you know, they were all in rehab and stuff. So they went to a bar anyway, and they were all drinking their, you know, root beers and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Alcohol free, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. And the bar was almost empty. And and then at the end of the bar was this uh, creature with big T's, platinum hair, black nails, ivory, porcelain skin. And um, uh, he... Um, you know, they were started drawing straws with the roadies. Who's going to go up and say hi? And so suddenly the creature turns around and it's Vince Neil of Motley Crue. <laughs> and so Steven said, I, he started going, ooh, that dude looks like a lady. That dude looks like a lady. Dude looks like a lady. Dude looks like a lady. And that's where the riff came out. And so mm-hmm. I talked them into going with that and, you know, telling the, their story. They cruised into a bar on the shore. Her picture graced the grime on the door. And, uh, you know, and also the great thing about the song is that maybe any other hetero man would have said, okay, and then I ran out of there. But, you know, in this case, it's never judge a book by its cover or who you're going to love by your lover. And then he goes, my funky lady, I like it, like it, like it, like that. (laughs) So back then, it's like the ultimate GLBT acceptance song ever. And I think it broke barriers and got people's going, you know, but I'll tell you one thing. One of the Maybe workers. Maybe it's time for a reboot. Maybe it's time for a 2021 reboot of that song. I don't know. Well, one of the workers came up to me at my house and said, you wrote that out, Aerosmith song. Uh, uh, yeah. And he goes, uh, do a naked lady. <laughs> That's how he you. heard it. And that just shows an audience is going to listen to a lyric and turn it into their own story about what they want, you know, do a naked lady. So um, <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. That's funny. We all have those songs that we mistake the words for. And then we finally realize what it was. And we go, what is that? <laughs> okay, I had yeah. no idea. You know, I tried to make up words for it. There was a, there was a band from England called the Kooks. That for the longest time, I couldn't figure out what, what he was saying. So I just made up a word. And my wife goes, you know, he's British. So he's just speaking British. And that's just a British slang. I'm like, oh, no, I just thought it was a word that I made up. So, yeah, there you go. Oh, man. Our well, second. So in any case, that's, that's the story on that. And it helped to, to break their, their album, Permanent Vacation. I would say that was that was the reboot of Aerosmith, to be honest with you. Yeah, and then the yeah. next day, uh, Joe didn't show up. I don't know if he liked me. I bet he didn't. And so Stephen turned up by himself, no roadies, no, no nothing. And there was this little Wurlitzer piano up against the stage. We sat there together, and uh, we wrote Angel. So not to be outdone, uh, Stephen didn't turn up the third day, and Joe turned up, and we rewrote Hearts Done Time. Damn. So that's why my name modern is modern day Lennon McCartney, man. And that's why my name is on these songs that isn't always the, the two of them. But that is sort of like the modern day Lennon McCartney, but they had Desmond Child there as, as sort of this, you were the surrogate, you're right in the oh, middle. More like, the, more like the referee. 
you know, free. <laughs> well said. More like, you know. Well, I think a lot of people have heard that, you know, I know I've, because when I did my research for this, I know you've told the uh, living on a prayer story in a bunch, in, in a few interviews, but I have never heard that story about the the three subsequent days of three huge songs that of writing with Aerosmith. That's pretty cool, man. It's more than pretty cool. But uh, let's move on to one of the more, one of the last of the uh, never let the truth get in the way of a good story. Um, you may be familiar with him. He's part of the upper brass of the Alice Cooper camp, Toby Mamis. And uh, he has asked a question. He actually, he, he phoned it in like he does. Uh, but Toby Mamis asks, do you still have the motorcycle Alice Cooper gave you? Well, I almost killed myself on the motorcycle. So oh, he shit. had, I have no he, idea what the stories were. He had given me a, like a Harley Davidson Roadster or something like that. When was and this? So Alice did after the success of, of uh, trash. And so okay. this was in California and Steve Vai was giving me lessons. So then I decided to just take it out on my own. And then wait, I, wait, Steve Vai, is, is Steve Vai giving you guitar lessons or have he given you motorcycle no, lessons? Motor Maybe. Well, maybe you should have had a different teacher than Steve. He would have taught you guitar, but not, not no, motorcycles. No, he, like he was like a huge biker. And so he gave me lessons. So I went and took it by myself. And then all of a sudden I lost control of it, went up on somebody's lawn, looked like I was going to go through their plate glass window and stopped at the very last minute. So I just walked it back to my house. You know, I ruined my back, just walked it back. And I said, no, I can't do this. So I, he had the gas tank. Uh, he had put this uh, uh, like incredible Alice Cooper, like, you know how that you do on cars and stuff of his yeah, face. And it, yeah. said, it said demon child, you know, which was, you know, a reference to me, demon yeah, child. And so um, I, I had that taken off and, you know, a new tank and then I sold it. You know, because I knew that I, you know, it's like when we, you know, after the riots in L.A., you know, we decided to take gun lessons, my husband and I. And uh, we did it from this, you know, off off duty cop that, you know, taught everybody how to do guns. And we went to the shooting range and all that. And then on graduation day, he said, OK, you're graduated. But I got to tell you, you're two people who should never own a gun. <laughs> you'll shoot yourself <laughs> the, the teacher told us this so you know guns motorcycles i don't think i'd make a good biker no well i'm good maybe steve i should have told you that before you got on the bike in the first place bad teacher you know the thing is do you ever he think that he thought i could do it he thought he and i could go like down pch and stuff and you know with our hair and the wind and all that stuff, but no, not to be. The thing is, I, I'm wondering if, if the motorcycle from Alice Cooper was like the monkey's paw. I wonder if he had gotten it as a gift, realized how dangerous it was, so he had to re-gift it to someone else. He gave. Uh, I, I don't know. He's been, know. he's been. He was very sweet, you know, uh, and to to do that. And, but that that gas tank is in my studio. And it's on the wall, and there it is. I see it every day. Oh, perfect. Well, you know what? Put an Instagram post up on it while you're going down that Instagram rabbit hole next time, and we will all like it, of course. Um, I love that. Des I'm going to do that. 
Desmond, I want to just, because I said 2020 shaping up to be a huge year. It's still going to be a big year, 20, whether it rolls into 2021. I want to talk about that live album because that is your latest project. Now, is that out, coming out? What's no, happening the, with the live album? The live album is out and it's up for, okay. I'm up for best new artist, best this and that. I forget what and I'm best up for. But for that record uh, called Desmond Child Live, and basically yeah. I had gotten... Uh, I had decided to take this because I started out in the little clubs, cabaret clubs of New York City. So I, I we took over a place called uh, 54 Below, where where the Studio 54 was upstairs, and this was like kind of like the orgy room or something originally, like where the drugs were taken downstairs. Anyway, it was turned into a very elegant, very beautiful nightclub, and the the creme de la creme performs there, including Countess Luann. And um, I, we, we were there three nights and we recorded this live album. It turned out great. And uh, that's where, that's what, when uh, I got back together with Rouge and we re-sang a song uh, that we had recorded long ago. We redid it called Love on a Rooftop. And that one's up for um, the, um, I don't know, it's like, I'm up for best new artist, album of the year, song of the year, Record of the year, best music video, best pop solo performance, best pop duo group performance, best pop vocal album, best engineer album, best rock performance, best arrangement, Damn. instrument vocals. Slow down. And uh, not bad for, you know, being in the not time. Not bad of for a new artist, huh? <laughs> I think you got artist. a shot there. <laughs> like I said, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not the best. I'm not new and artist questionable. But... Um, <laughs> Uh, it, well, the, it's 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 like I'm very proud of it, and um, you know I'm I'm so lucky. I mean, the songs that I um, helped to write, you know, were made big by the drive and the energy and talent of the 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 performers I co-wrote with. So you know, while they were out there killing themselves, you know, I was you know living the life. You know, so yeah, but you I, pushed I, a lot of those artists and, and made a lot of those artists, the doors open, obviously they walk through them and they had, you know, they were able to forge their career, but you gave them that little nudge, whether it was those sessions of inspiration or whether it's just the songs that you guys were magic that you were able to create during that time. Yeah. Well, uh, definitely. We, we did it together. And I think one of my talents really is empathy. You know, it's like being in a room and feeling the other people and getting them comfortable, you know, to be the best that they can be instead of feeling like, oh, he's trying to make me this and trying to make me that. You know, it's kind of like we're in it together. And I think that's and sometimes, you know, when you have long term, you know, guitar, uh, lead guitar and lead singer, uh, itis between two people, sometimes a yeah. third person uh, kind of like, you know, okay, okay, guys. you know, it, it kind of it it becomes productive, yeah. and so then they look to me. Sometimes they gang up on me. It's not nice. Yeah. Lukewarm water. <laughs> Didn't they say in Spinal Tap? It's good. It's good to be lukewarm water. <laughs> somebody's fire. Somebody's eyes. You're lukewarm water. It's perfect. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> the one myth about me is that when I walked into a room, people were always shocked that I was white. 
because with a name like Desmond, they thought I was Jamaican. They thought I was True. like from the island, man. Desmond, <laughs> you know, Desmond, man, Desmond, child, man, you know. And so that was kind of like always kind of a shock to people. <laughs> well, I, I know you've probably been asked a million times, how do you go from John Charles Barrett to Desmond Child? But just to clear the record, because we've gone through everything else today on In the Trenches, how okay. did that switch when, make and when did it make? When I got to high school, I saw my name was John, John Charles Barrett. They call me Johnny Barrett. Um, my mother was Cuban, but my stepfather, whose name I had, was Amer- English American. His parents were from England. And... Um, you know, uh, there was this girl on, on the lawn of the school during um, lunch, and she was playing her own songs. And her name was Debbie Wall or Deborah Wallstein. Uh, you know, she had these names. And I was just, you know, touched by her because my mother was a songwriter. So we became deep friends and uh, we started co-writing together and decided we were going to uh, because remember, this is like, Jesus, 1969, 1970, and this is hippie times. So we wanted to have our duo be called Night Child, like all one word, Night Child. Nightfall. And um, you know what? I was in a band so, called Starfire. I was in a one word band called Starfire not a couple years later, 70s. But yeah, I like that one word, Night Child. Yeah, Night Child. So she became Virgil Knight, N-I-G-H-T, and I and she named me Desmond Child because we were fans of. I didn't know what gay was or anything. I just knew that I was attracted to boys and girls. So I thought, oh well, I'm like David Bowie and like you know Mick Jagger and stuff. I'm like you know whatever I want to be and all this kind of stuff. Later, I found out I was more gay than I was bi, but that was when I grew up. Uh, but I had boyfriends and girlfriends and I was wanted to be a rock star. And so it was, it was pretty crazy. And um, so it came That's how I became Desmond child. The, the thing is, unfortunately a, your, your internet was a cliffhanger. That was more of let, never let the truth, never let the internet get in the way of a good story. We should maybe change oh. the uh, segment to Vic. Never let the internet get in the way of a good story, which it just did. But the point is the song, your name, Desmond Child, came from the song, the Beatles song, Obadi Obada. Desmond, yeah. And what was the line from that? Yeah. And what's the, what's the line, that, that line in the verse? I don't know, something about like Desmond would stay home and paint his pretty face. Okay. So I, I related, you know, to me because I, I was like, I mean, there's a picture of me and my girlfriend at the time, uh, Lisa Roberts, who her code name was Lash Larue, and she was like a year older than me, so she was the older woman, and she took me to an Alice Cooper concert, 1973, at the um, Miami. Uh, what do they call that? That. It was like a basket with a ball or whatever. Highlight. Highlight. Miami Highlight. The concert was there. Uh, Todd Rundgren was the opening act. And um, uh, she dressed me up in her, like, clothes, all, you know, like goth with, like, these black uh, rhinestones under my eyes. And, I mean, it was crazy. Uh, And so – that was 1973. I have that picture. I mean, you, I think you can see it in my Instagram. And Nick, you want to uh, the picture up now. He's trying to find uh, it. 
So that's when I saw Alice Cooper for the first time and he had the guillotine and the whole thing. So anyway, that's the whole thing is like in that, in those days, I mean, he was kind of androgynous. His name was Alice. He wore makeup, you know, it was like the idea of being a rock star was you could be all things to all people. And so that suited me fine. And so that's how, that's, that's how it happened. Wow. Desmond, I wish the internet was cooperating with us more, but unfortunately right now we are just getting a little bit of too pixelated, but um, so we're going to wrap things up, but it's been a pleasure talking. Um, Honestly, I look forward to Rouge. There's a shot. He found it. That's good. That's, that's our production. That's producer Vic Chalfont doing his, doing his gig. That was that that picture from that concert. April, 1973. Wow. All right. Well, folks, You've been listening to active participant Desmond Child, and uh, I'm sure at one point you can hear all these songs and more at his new, uh, at his eventual place called the Desmond Dive Bar, which I think we've just christened. I love that. Not bad. It's not bad, is it? I'm doing it. I'm doing it. Desmond's Dive Bar. I love it's it. In, it's in Nashville. We're on record as as, as putting it on That's there right, right now. But De- Desmond, it's been a it's been a pleasure. Um, one more time, we'll put your socials up, and uh, maybe you can uh, say them for the folks listening on Apple Broadcast. It's uh, yes, at Desmond. Instagram, it's at Desmond.child. Facebook is just Desmond Child, and Twitter is Desmond Child, at Desmond Child. And you can go to DesmondChild.com, and you can visit me at, uh, at Desmond Child and Rouge on Instagram and um also, there's we're launching it, I think, tonight, uh, DesmondChildAndRouge.com. And in it is a video. It's like a 15-minute little documentary movie of the story of Desmond Child and Rouge. And it's so, so good. You, you're right. going to love it. All right, great. So we know we're we're gonna meet somewhere on Instagram, somewhere on later night tonight, later on tonight, folks. After we wrap this all up, but uh, best of luck with twenty, the rest of twenty twenty, and t- we'll see you somehow, some way in twenty twenty one. You've been coming. I, I know you. You mentioned Sweden because Andreas Carlson. I know him as well. I'm in Stockholm, Sweden. Our producers in Arkansas. You're in Nashville. Um, I think Ashley's somewhere in the UK, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Joe Joey that, that graced us. In fact, does everybody want to come on screen as we do our big good farewell goodbye? Um, but Ashley and Joey, you're from San Diego. So, folks, um, thank you very much for being a part of it. Thank you very much, Desmond. Appreciate it. All right. Love you. And thank you. And until next time, folks, I'm Ryan Roxy. You're in the trenches and enjoy the ride. Trenches with Ryan Roxy.